Mach chita mad gita prana, bodeyantas paras param, katayantas chamam nicham, tushabdicha romanticha. The thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me, their lives are fully devoted to my service, and they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. I was born in the darkness of ignorance, but my spiritual master has opened my eyes. With the torchlight of knowledge, I offer my most respectful obeisances unto him. It's interesting to note that uh, these four nutshell verses of Bhagavad Gita actually present in a, in a, in a very concise manner the, the whole process by which we attain transcendental knowledge, spiritual knowledge. First we must have some, some bandha. Some bandha means that we have some understanding of what is the supreme and what is the living entity, what is the material world. We have some preliminary understanding of the relationships between matter and spirit and between the Supreme Lord and his, as in his different energies. That Sambanda, from that Sambanda, we realize that as long as we are in contact with this material world, we're in illusion, we're in a state of, of confusion. Our true spiritual being of eternity, knowledge and bliss can't be fully appreciated. So therefore we engage in an activity Abhideya. Abhideya means some practice, some way that we can rise above material involvement, which simply, in all instances, ends in disaster. Does that mean we're simply a bunch of pessimists that sit around and say, well, everything in the material world is, 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 is going to hell, so uh, why take pleasure in it? No, we're realists, because everything in the material world is going to hell, and there's no pleasure here that's ever going to satisfy us. We've discussed this so many times. As much as we develop loving relationships, as much as we develop our, our senses in so many different ways, as much as we become advanced in knowledge and, and advanced in whatever vocation we may take up in life, ultimately... In the short span of life, it's all devastated. Everyone that we fall in love with leaves us or we leave them. If not voluntarily, then by force. Whatever money we accumulate, whatever wealth we accumulate, whatever prestigious position, whatever fame or knowledge we accumulate is yanked away from us at the time of death. These things, this pulling away, this separation of us from the objects that we desire is foreign to our spiritual nature. It's foreign. We're eternal. We're full of knowledge and we're meant to be full of bliss. And all the engagements here, they don't allow us to fully appreciate our true spiritual nature. So this verse 
of the four verses, which are the core of Bhagavad Gita, Machita Madgata Prana Bodhayantas Paraspara, this verse speaks to Abhideya, a practice by which we can purify our existence and taste our true spiritual being. What is the practice? First of all, let's go back to Sambandha, the first verse. Verse number eight, Krishna says, I am the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Everything emanates from me. The wise who perfectly know this engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. In other words, a wise person is not going to waste his time getting too wrapped up in those things that are going to be forcibly separate, he's going to be forcibly separated from. Does that mean that he doesn't have a fulfilling, a rich and fulfilling, satisfying life? No, he does. He does have a satisfying life, but he sees everything in proper perspective. He still has a wife and family. He still has vocation. He still engages in all the activities that Everybody else does, but he engages in those activities in knowledge. And what is the knowledge? The knowledge is of the relationships, the sambandha between the living entity, the material nature, and the supreme. The Lord is explaining him, I'm the source of everything. If you, whatever you do in life, if you keep this in mind, then your consciousness is purified. Your existence and your activities are purified. That knowledge alone, seeing everything in relationship to the Supreme, that knowledge alone can sanctify it, can sanctify your activities, can sanctify your consciousness. Sambandha, the relationships. I am the source of the spiritual and material worlds. Everything is emanating from me. Well, anybody that has any conception of the Supreme understands these simple facts. Everything's coming from God. Mm. The wise who know this perfectly engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. This is the relationship. This is what you do. How do you do it? How do you worship the Supreme with all your hearts? Now we go for Sambandha. From Sambandha, understanding the relationships to the actual activity of worshiping in such a way that we become purified, that we see things in proper perspective. Machita madgita pranas. The thoughts of my devotees, my pure devotees, dwell in me. What was at the end of the last chapter? Chapter 9. We just finished. Offer obeisances unto me. Right. Manmana bhava madbhato, madjaji mam namaskaru. Engage your mind always in thinking of me. Worship me. Offer obeisances to me. In such a state of mind, certainly you'll become purified and come to me. What's going on? The thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me. Their minds are fixed on me. Their lives are fully devoted to my service. And they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. Again, we go back to the beginning of the ninth chapter. What's Krishna say there? Raja Vidya Raja Guyam. What distinguishes 
the practice of true spiritual culture from all the cheating religions of the world. Now, when we say cheating religion, what do we mean? When we refer to a religion of cheating, we mean a religion that's not based on pure love. Now, in this material world, when we have a relationship on any level which is not pure love, what is its characteristic? A business arrangement. Exploitation. I'm with somebody because I want to exploit them. The employee? Needy. Yes. Exploitation. So those things are there. The, the, the exploitative mentality is one which is, is without the care and concern for the other's benefit, leaving aside our own benefit. So we'll love, love. When we speak of love, we speak of selfless. That, um, that business arrangement would be uh, classified more like of ignorance, would it not be? No, it could be passionate. It could be in goodness. The main thing is, is it's, it's, it's with a desire which is not fully one of selflessness. When we speak of love in the highest degree, the highest degree of love, we talk of total self, selflessness. When we look at a saint, like we look at Lord Jesus Christ, in his life, was there anything he was doing which wasn't for the benefit of his disciples and mankind? Everything was to spread spiritual knowledge. That's selfless. That's the selfless position of pure love. There are a lot of religions in the world which are not based on that highest principle or although the, the foundation of those traditions was based on the highest principle, as time goes on, that highest principle is lost. Now, as we've mentioned, even the practice of devotional service, Krishna also points out in Bhagavad Gita that even that process, over time, becomes polluted Yada yada hi dharma shyaglanir bhavati bharata. Whenever and wherever there's a decline in religious practice and a predominance of irreligion, at that time I advent myself. I correct the situation. Here we have the second item. First we have sambandha, knowledge of the inner relationship. Abhideya, how do we practice and live our life and conduct our affairs in such a way at, that we fully attain the goal of that practice. And that's the verse we chanted tonight. The thoughts of my pure devotees dwell in me. Their lives are fully devoted to my service and they derive great satisfaction and bliss from always enlightening one another and conversing about me. There's a test in that verse, is there not? As to our, our practice, abhideya, the activities we go through to make advancement in spiritual life. What's the test? Krishna gives. Always enlightening one another and conversing about me. Now, when we receive real knowledge, 
we're not, we know it. It actually is enlivening, is it not, to get, to get something that's substantial, some knowledge that, that is really helpful, some knowledge that really touches our heart. We know, we know. That's different from, that, from some mundane knowledge, which is just what we would call book learning. When somebody really gives us something that gives us a way that we can enrich our lives and our being, we feel it. And Krishna goes on here, they're always enlightening one another, conversing about me. Tushyanti cha romanti cha. Tushyanti. Becoming pleased. So true spiritual knowledge is pleasurable. Romanti cha. And in the purport, Prabhupada gives us some clue. What does this mean? What is this romanticha? What is this romanti, this romance? What is this romance? Yes. And what is it? What is the example Prabhupada gives? Like a young boy and girl. Yes. What is that like? That's the most pleasing. Hmm? That romance, that roman- romantic, that's really the, the so the acharya is this, this tushyanti cha is the nectar. It's like drinking a nectarian beverage of knowledge. Tushyanti cha, romanti cha. And the result of this nectarian beverage of spiritual knowledge is a, a, an appreciation of a loving relationship with the Supreme, just as a young boy and a young girl ex- exchange loving feelings, loving sentiment. Sambandha, abhideya, some way that we practice. We practice in the association of devotees. We practice kirtan. Isn't that in the verse? Katha. Discourse. We're talking about spiritual subject matters. If this is not purifying to your heart in due course of time, you're going to give it up and there'll be no more coming to this class. If we don't speak to the if we don't speak to the heart, then the religion just becomes what? It becomes it becomes hackneyed. It becomes dry. Then what? As we go to church, we go to we go to mosque, we go to synagogue, but what do we go there for? It's simply a social convention. Religiosity. Artha, dharma, karma, moksha. Economic development. Religiosity. What's religiosity for in the world? Well, it's generally for prestige. Societal prestige. Ah, so I was at church, I'm to church every Sunday. Am I really, is my heart melting? Am I learning how to become? Am I truly tasting spiritual life? Eh, It doesn't matter. It's a social affair. When our pursuit of transcendental knowledge, when our pursuit of spiritual enlightenment becomes simply a social affair, then it just becomes a mundane religious practice. And there's no enlightenment. The true test, as Krishna pointed out in the beginning of the ninth chapter, this knowledge is the king of education, the most secret of all secrets. It's the purest knowledge. And because it gives direct perception of the self by 
realization. We want to take on a religious practice that allows us to experience the Supreme, to experience spiritual enlightenment, to experience bliss, to experience our true self, eternity, knowledge, and bliss, Satchitananda. That's what we want. That's our test. So that's the test of our practice. That's the test that we should apply daily in our devotional practice. Am I truly appreciating if I'm engaged in, in, in japa, in, in meditation on the Supreme, whatever form we, we practice in order to, to purify ourselves of mundane affiliation? So this practice is here, and we should see that we're drinking a nectar that is actually satisfying to us and giving us a pleasure just as a pleasure between young man and a young woman. That we actually taste spiritual joy. So the result. Sambandha, abhideya, some practice, sambandha, the knowledge, the inner relationships, abhideya, the practice, then what is the result? What, what do we get? What is the goal of that practice? To those who are constantly devoted to serving me with love, I give the understanding by which they come to me. Well, that's a goal. Being with the Supreme Lord. Come to me. Actually come. Imagine that relationship. Imagine that love. Imagine... Actually seeing God face to face. Sambandha Abhideya. Prayojana. Goal. Seeing the Supreme Lord face to face. Krishna goes on to fortify that. To show them special mercy, I, dwelling in their hearts, destroy with the shining lamp of knowledge the darkness born of ignorance. Basically that means that's, that ends material existence. No more being forced by the laws of this material world, by the laws of karma, to take birth under the uh, under authority of someone else. To show them special mercy, I dwelling in their hearts destroy with a shining lamp of knowledge the darkness born of ignorance. We're all born in ignorance. I didn't get to choose. I didn't get to choose. This body, that body, man, woman, no choice. I'm forced to take birth based on my karmic activity, based on the way I conduct my affairs in this world. The material world forces me to take another birth if I still have some material desire. I don't think nobody gets to choose. I mean, that's our destiny, basically. You know, we're, we're and what, what creates our destiny? Uh, our karma. Yes, our activities. Krishna speaking here, that's gone. If we engage in the proper practice, machchita mm-hmm. madgata prana, mm-hmm. to show them special mercy, Krishna, just like a warden, just like the president can commute any one sentence, right. we're certainly sentenced to suffer our karma. We don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. But if somebody commutes our sentence, then the karma can end. That's what Krishna is speaking about. To show them special mercy. Who's them? Those that 
are always chanting my glories that are engaged in the process of devotional service, that are trying to purify themselves. I, dwelling in their hearts, destroy with the shining lamp of knowledge the darkness born of ignorance. Let's take a look at the beginning of this 10th chapter real quickly and see what Krishna says to lead us up to this point. You know, as I said, this, this chapter, the opulence of the absolute, opulence, what's an opulence? Opulence is a, is a, is a power, an energy. So, uh, vibhuti. I'm just going to go through the verses and then we'll discuss a general theme through these uh, opening verses from 1 through 8. The Supreme Personality of Godhead said, Listen again, O mighty armed Arjuna, because you are my dear friend. For your benefit, I shall speak to you further, giving knowledge which is better than that I have than what I have already explained. Uh, Neither a host of demigods nor the great sages know my origin or opulence, for in every respect I am the source of the demigods and sages. He who knows me as the unborn, as the beginningless, as the supreme of all worlds, supreme lord of all worlds, He only, undiluted among men, is freed from all sins. Intelligence, knowledge, freedom from doubt and delusion, forgiveness, truthfulness, control of the senses, control of the mind, happiness and distress, birth, death, fear, fearlessness, nonviolence, equanimity, satisfaction, austerity, charity, fame and infamy. All these various qualities of living beings are created by me alone. the seven great sages and before them the four other great sages and the Manus, progenitors of mankind, come from me, born from my mind, and all the living beings populating the various planets descend from them. One who is fastly convinced of this opulence and mystic power of mind engages in undeloyed devotional service. Of this there is no doubt. Then, to the beginning of the core verses. I am the source of all spiritual material worlds. Everything emanates from me. The wise who perfectly know this engage my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. This opulence of the absolute. There's a qualification here that, that Arjuna has that gives that that inspires Lord Krishna to speak this confidential knowledge. If we look to the very first verse of the chapter, we notice the word priyamanaya. Priya, manaya. Priya, priya means dearness, like preta. <laughs> priya, prema. Loving, lovingly. Arjuna has the characteristic of loving Krishna. They have a loving relationship, a loving, friendly relationship. Srila Prabhupada translates this word, uh, priyamanaya, thinking, you dear to me. This in and of itself qualifies one to obtain 
transcendental knowledge. If we can conduct our affairs in such a way that the Supreme Lord looks on us as dear to him, then we become qualified to understand the most confidential levels of spiritual awareness. We become dear to him and he's willing to give. So how do we do that? One would ask, if one wanted to have the most confidential knowledge that was available to the living entity, if that was of value to you, then you would want to perform whatever activity would, that would afford you that opportunity, would you not? So let's talk about that. What can we do to obtain this prema, this kind of affection from the supreme towards us? Because when we have that affection, then he's willing to give the most confidential knowledge. All these things, all these things are beneficial. Both things, yes, surrender, chanting. But the foremost activity that we can engage in is one of serving those people who are already in the Lord's confidence. That's the whole process of devotional service. We, what's Krishna say in Bhagavad Gita? One who really wants to have spiritual knowledge, who really wants to advance in spiritual life, what's he do? Associate with the devotees. Mm. Foremost, though, to attain that knowledge before the association, the first thing, tadvidi pranipate na pariprashnena sevaya upadakshyantike dhyanam jarinas darsina. If you really want to have knowledge, Tadvidi, just seek out a bona fide spiritual master. Inquire from him submissively rendering service. A self-realized soul can impart knowledge unto you because he's seeing the truth. So this is the beginning of how we can obtain this loving glance from the Supreme. Where he will want to take interest in us. And that is by us taking interest in one of his loving servants. We've, we've given the analogy, but let's repeat it. It's very simple. Let's take someone who is the most, most famous, wealthy, has the highest position, a government or in government, a president or a king. If you really want to please the king, there's a simple way. If you were to see the king walking down the street, and his son was with him, and you could do something to endear the son, to praise the son. If you gave the son, even the, his son, even the simplest of, of a candy, just some little sweet, the son would become pleased. Immediately the father would say, oh, wow. Immediately he'd take an interest, wouldn't he? Mm -hmm. Oh, you've, you've, wow, you've, you've, You've done this for my son. How nice. 
In fact, in this age, we're so... Even, even you pet my dog, I'm like, wow, <laughs> thanks. These things of doing something, even though we may be completely unqualified, unfit, without any, any spiritual qualities ourselves, if somehow or other we can do something to please the Lord's intimate devotees, those that are already in contact, all the, those that are already on the highest platform of spiritual love, specifically the bona fide spiritual master who has the qualifications which are apparent to us of a spiritual love for the supreme, if we can please them, then the Lord will glance favorably upon us and that, that's the easiest thing. Unfortunately, we notice that so many people take to so many different disciplines in order to advance themselves spiritually. Uh, they'll take on uh, extreme uh, penances and austerities. They'll take on a very, a very strict lifestyle or yoga practice or they'll travel to all the different holy places of pilgrimage. They'll do all these things and they'll, they'll try to, by their own power, by their own energy, they'll try to advance themselves spiritually. And they'll try to obtain knowledge from that practice of the Supreme Lord. The beginning of this chapter is very instructive in this regard. Because what does Krishna say? He first of all tells Arjuna, you have the qualification whereby I'm willing to give you the most confidential spiritual knowledge. And then he goes on to point out that the most elevated people in the material universe may not be qualified to obtain this knowledge I'm giving you. In the second verse, what's he say? Neither the hosts of demigods, the demigods, the controllers of the universe, neither those hosts of demigods, nor all the great sages. Now, what's the distinction between these two groups? The demigods are generally concerned with material opulence, prestige, and control. They're the controlling agents of this material world. They control the, the, the light of the sun. They control the rainfall. They control all aspects of, of earthly existence. The blinking of your eyes. Even down to the blinking of your eyes. Yes. Of course, Western culture doesn't have any knowledge of demigods, but we may have some other conceptions. Still, Krishna is speaking of the true, true arrangement of, of the material universe. So there are hosts of demigods that control every single aspect of our existence. They control the air we breathe, the sunlight we have, the water we drink. They control the planet we live on, the vegetation that, that sustains us. They control the fact that we can have offspring. Everything is controlled by demigods. Some people... Re some people understand that control as providence. 
some people understand it as the stars, the influence of the stars. They may look to different things. Behind all of those different conceptions of what controls us within the material world, there is what is referred to here as the host of demigods. So the material controllers. Then there's the great rishis, the great thinkers, the great spiritual thinkers who are renunciants. They don't have any desire for material control. Both the, mater both the highest materialists and the highest renunciate renouncers of materialism. In this second verse, what's Krishna saying about both of these classes? The most attached and the most detached? Neither of them can understand him. In every respect, I am the source of the demigods and the sages. Although they both emanate from him, but is it possible to control the demigods or ride their backs? Is it possible for yeah, who to control? Us. Can you control the wind? Uh, no. The sunshine? Uh, if we stand in the shade. <laughs> <laughs> you're, always, you're always outsmarting me. What can I say? <laughs> no. There's no possibility. We can, we can avail ourselves of activities and sacrifices which will allow, allow, them, allow us to satisfy them in such a way that uh, they'll provide us what we like. But in all, all instances, uh, they're superior to us in intelligence and power by a millionfold. So it's impossible in other words. Yes. It's impossible unless you really, 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 really are willing to go to the ends of the earth to do that. Now, I'll explain it. Yogi powers, you have to really get into that. Yes. There was one person who said, I want to control the universe. <laughs> and he performed austerities for thousands of years. His name was Aranyakasipu. And he became so powerful that when he didn't breathe, the demigods had trouble breathing. That's how much material power he obtained from his austerities. To such an extent that he rose in power to the point where the demigods were fearful of him. But there's one, one thing he could not control. He could not control his son because his son had pure love for the Supreme Lord. So even though, he, even though all the demigods were frightened to death of Hiranyakasipu because of his material power and opulence, because of all his austerities, he'd become that powerful that they were in, they were like shaking. He, his son was not at all fearful of him. <laughs> this made Aranyakasi food furious. And he says, how could I have a son that's not fearful of me when the whole universe quakes when I walk? Made him so, so very, very angry that he tried to kill his son in numerous ways. Threw him into a pit of snakes, poisoned him, 
threw him off a mountain. And, and in every instance, he couldn't kill his son. Because why? Because his son was a pure devotee. This chapter in Bhagavad Gita speaks to the characteristics of pure devotional service. His son, whose name was Prahlad Maharaj, was a pure devotee of the Lord. Finally, the Supreme Lord himself said, enough is enough. Quit, quit harassing my son. At that point, the Lord personally appeared before this great Haranyakasipu, who, put, who held the, the demigods in awe. Uh, he appeared before him and, and, and took away all his power in an instant. He ripped him to shreds. So even though he became that powerful, which yes, if you really, really want it, yeah, perform austerities and maybe you could become more powerful than the demigods. But we should learn from this story of Pallad Maharaj that all the power in the world will never satisfy you and protect you as much as having a loving relationship with the Lord without gaining the favor of Krishna. Because ultimately, although Hiranyakasipu could defeat everybody, he couldn't defeat his son. His son was fully protected by Krishna and ultimately Hiranyakasipu was defeated because of that loving relationship. That's what Krishna is speaking of here. Krishna goes on in the third verse, He who knows me as the unborn, as the beginningless, as the supreme lord of all the worlds, he only, undiluted among men, is freed from all sins. Again, transcendental knowledge will set you free. Now, the, in reading and preparing for class this evening, it's interesting, some of the commentators on Bhagavad Gita, they point out that these material qualities that Krishna speaks of in the fourth and fifth verse as coming from him Krishna is also giving an indication that these items are also not a way that we can obtain transcendental knowledge of him. In other words, they're not, although we have these things within the material world, they in and of themselves are not sufficient for, self, for, for spiritual advancement, for self-realization. Intelligence, knowledge, freedom from doubt and delusion, forgiveness, truthfulness, control of the senses, control of the mind, happiness and distress, birth, death, fear, fearlessness, nonviolence, equanimity, satisfaction, austerity, charity, fame, and infamy. All these various qualities of living beings are created by me alone. There's always a class of men that think that they can, they can, if they can attain all knowledge, then they'll know God. If they can perform all austerities, then they'll know God. If they can give everything in charity, then they're entitled to know God. No, that's not going to work. Another story in this regard. Lord Chaitanya, who was Krishna himself, comes as a devotee. He used to perform kirtan. And his kirtans were extremely intimate. Of course, he had his public display of kirtan, but he also had his private get-togethers in the evening with his most, most advanced devotees. These kirtans, I'm imagining, were just saturated with love. Are you talking and about other, Lord Chaitanya? Yes. 
in these kirtans, spiritual emotions which would be displayed by the devotees that were participating that would normally not be displayed publicly. And you can understand that. In other words, they would shed tears, they would roll on the ground. They would, do, they would act in such a way out of their intense love for the, for the Supreme Lord that the common man would consider, consider them mad. They'd just be taken over with ecstasy, and these ecstasies cannot be understood by, by common man. Therefore, they were private affairs. They weren't private public. Going, private crime. Yes. There was one Brahmin, and this Brahmin was very qualified. He was fully self-controlled. He, uh, he he was just he was he was just a, a great Brahmin, and he uh, he hardly ate anything. He 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 hardly slept. He was a very self-controlled. What what the men of the world consider a, a saint, a sadhu, a self-controlled spiritualist. So this Brahmin, he kept going to the proprietor of the house where Lord Chaitanya would perform his kirtan. And he said, can I come? No, he can't come. You know, you know. So he kept saying, well, what, what qualification do I lack? I'm a Brahmin. I have no material desires. I'm desireless materially. Uh, so why can't I come? So finally the proprietor of the house said, okay, you can hide in the closet and watch. <laughs> So Lord Chaitanya came and of course they began the kirtan and then Lord Chaitanya stopped the kirtan he said somebody's here that's not qualified. And, uh, and uh, the proprietor of the, uh, the house said yes there is one Brahmin that I've invited you know he's asking I've allowed him to come and observe the kirtan and and, and Lord Chaitanya said uh, Brahman was, was known for only taking milk. He only drank milk. He didn't take any solid food at all. And Lord Chaitanya said, he said, do you think that simply drinking only milk can make one a lover of God? So again, this verse here, all these material characteristics are, are great. They can help us advance to the level of pure goodness. And from the level of pure goodness by being truthful, by being honest, by being charitable, by having all these good qualities, we can certainly advance to the platform. But those, that advancement, if it doesn't rise, if we don't rise through those activities to the platform of pure devotional service, then we're not qualified for the highest level of transcendental knowledge. That's above. So the host of demigods, the great rishis and sages, using all of our material qualities, no matter how, how beneficial they may be from a material viewpoint, how much sattvic, how much in the mode of goodness, of sattva, they may be, that in and of itself does not qualify us. Again, back to the beginning of the chapter. What was Arjuna's qualification? He's his close friend. Yes, his close friend, his dear friend. And Krishna looked upon him lovingly. Prabhupada goes into to a, a detailed explanation of these different qualities. 
for the fourth and fifth verse. Sixth verse, again, Krishna is pointing out the fact that the seven great sages and the four, and before them the four other great sages, the Manus, the progenitors of mankind, come from me, born from my mind, and all the living beings populating the various planets descend from them. Krishna, again, this is one of his opulences, to see everything is coming from the Supreme. That all, whatever we're experiencing, ultimately Krishna is the Supreme Father. Everything is coming from the Supreme Lord. One who is factually convinced of this opulence and mystic power of mind engages in unalloyed devotional service. Of this there is no doubt. Once we know that the Supreme Lord is the background of everything and the, and the source of our, our very being, then we can rise to a full understanding of transcendental knowledge, of spiritual knowledge. Then Krishna goes on to really explain his opulence. Sambandha, the relationship of his supremacy within this world. Aham sarvashya prabhava I am the source of all spiritual and material worlds. Everything emanates from me. The wise who know this perfectly engage in my devotional service and worship me with all their hearts. One other important thing to realize from the third verse is although all the various demigods, rishis, progenitors of mankind who populate the universe at the beginning of each day of Brahma, they take birth. They're forced by the laws of material nature to take birth and their source is the Supreme Lord. Although the Lord appears within the material world, he never takes birth. He simply appears. He's not forced. He doesn't take a material body. He appears in his self-same spiritual body. It's important for us never to feel, never to have a misconception regarding the Lord's appearance, no matter what incarnation or what manifestation. We should also be very careful when dealing with the, with the position of the bona fide spiritual master. It is offensive to consider the spiritual master's body to be material. What does material mean when we say that? Does that mean that the spiritual master didn't take birth from a womb and he was, uh, you know, was divine conception? No, we don't mean that. What we mean is the bona fide spiritual master who is cent percent engaged in the Supreme Lord's service, is free of all material engagement. What's material engagement? Karmic engagement. Karmic means what? Means the force of the laws of material nature. Therefore, because the spiritual master is cent percent engaged only in spiritual matters, he's only working for the Supreme Lord, then his body is not material like our body. Our body we're using to what? Exploit the material world for sense enjoyment. A said percent spiritualist, the pure devotee, has no interest in sense enjoyment. He may have a material body. He may take a material body. He may be a Saktavish avatar, like Lord Jesus Christ. Was there a question when you put on the, uh, the crown of thorns? Did he not bleed? 
when the spikes were driven through the hands and the feet, there was blood. But the body was not material. So much so that in the tradition of Christianity, what do we say? We eat the body, we drink the blood, because it's fully spiritual, it'll purify us. And of course, great saints, they can also perform some miracle to really make the, bring the point home. Maybe we can, you know, move the rocks aside and walk away. Hey, I'm not dead. I was never, I don't have a material body like you have a body. You have a material body, you're forced by material nature to suffer in this world. If you give up the exploitative mentality of material existence and come to the spiritual platform and simply engage in, in loving affairs, in giving affairs, in, in doing those things which are for the upliftment of humanity to the highest level of spiritual life, then you will also lose your material body. I'll stop there. Any questions? This whole, well, it's this whole thing about this, you know, not having a material body, so it's a spiritual body. Due right? to the, due to its right use. Right. Yes. Because it's been purified. It's transcendental. And what's the, anal the analogy that's often given in that regard just to help us understand is if you place an iron rod in the fire, it takes on what? The full characteristics of fire. It can burn like fire. Therefore, it, does, wouldn't, it would not have this, the physical senses that we have, right? He still has physical senses. Spiritual master still has physical senses. He just doesn't misuse those senses in an exploitive way. We use our senses. We use our eyes to see the beautiful form of a woman or a man and enjoy. We use our ears to hear, you know, so much rubbish of politics and, <laughs> and social discourse and music or whatever. Not that the devotees don't enjoy music. We enjoy music. Yes. But it's all in relationship to Krishna. Materialist, we, use our, we also use our, our nose but it's not an exploitive way. It's, it's, uh, we smell the incense that's offered to Krishna. We taste the prasadam. We see the form of the Lord. We see the devotees of the Lord. We serve the Lord's devotees with our hands and our legs and bodies. The more we do that, the more we spiritualize our existence. Well, it seems, you know, we're talking about that it's not a material body like in the yoga, in the context of yoga, it would be, you know, like, transcending the material body you know there's a subtle body mm -hmm. but that's not really no. it's not the same mm -hmm. context no we're talking about complete utilization of material energy in spiritual activity spiritualizes although, although others may see it as material the fact is it's truly fully spiritualized mm -hmm. others saw Lord Jesus hanging on the cross but did he have a material body at that time? <clears throat> he had no desire for exploit, no exploitive desire. He was on spiritual soil. That's the distinction. So even with spiritual master, he also leaves the body. He appear, appears to leave. Uh, 
I don't know the history of Krishna's appearance, then he didn't he didn't have an ordinary birth. Is that what you were implying yeah. earlier? What's this you read? Okay, so Krishna, when he appeared himself, I mean the Lord appears in so many different incarnations, but Krishna specifically, uh, his appearance, he first appeared as Lord Vishnu in the prison house. In the prison house? In the prison house of Kamsa, where his his mother and father were. Oh, okay. Devaki and Vasudev. So he appeared... Four arms, Vishnu form. Okay. And then he then he changed his form into one of a baby. So no, he didn't take birth from womb. From okay. womb. So. How did he get to Yashoda? Yashoda in the Vaki. Well, floated down a river in a basket. No. No, he no. was traded. He was traded. He was taken by Vasudev from the prison house. What happened is Krishna's yoga maya, his internal potency, he basically put everybody, all the prison guards to sleep and opened all the, all the, all the <laughs> gates. And Vasudev carried him out of love. He carried him to, to the home of, of Yasoda and Nanda Maharaj in, in Vrindavan because he was afraid that Kamsa would kill him. Oh, yeah. right. Now, who could kill God? We all know no one can kill God. But still, the affection that's exchanged between the Lord and his pure devotees is so intense that those devotees that think they're the parent of God, they don't see his opulence and power. They only have love. And that love overpowers, it bewilders them. Whereas we can see, well, yes, there there may be some. It's fully explained how Krishna appears in all his different incarnations, Mm -hmm. but never, never material birth. Never taking material form. His body is always Satchitananda. Mm-hmm. All of his senses are fully interchangeable. Uh, you see with his ears. If he wants. Yeah. Anything else? Thank you so very much. Thank Thank you